Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you, whether you're joining us online or on campus. Welcome to Sunridge. If you're new, if, you, if you've been around here long enough to remember Kevin Klein, who I just want to say thank you so much, Kevin. Um, I worked with Kevin while he was here and. I used to tell people, you know, not only is he remarkably talented, but he, of all the worship pastors that I've ever worked with, he was the truest pastor, the truest worship pastor. And uh, I just admired uh, you so much, Kevin, and appreciated the opportunity that I got to work alongside you. So thanks for dropping in and checking us out while you're down here in Southern California from all the way up in the Northwest in Oregon. This is called Sunshine, by the way, that you saw up there. You may have not seen it in a while. Um, I wanted to let you guys know before I got started that last week I asked you, you know, uh, to help us fund a full-time uh, high school pastor. And uh, you did it. You did it, Sunridge. So, uh, you know, every December, Sunridge just has such a history of being so generous, and we try to pick a thing. And uh, this was the most important thing to us this year. And I, I'm just, and for our students, for our church, so, so just huge thanks to all of you who sacrificed to make that happen. We're going to begin to search now, and um, so start praying for that. And if, and if you miss the boat, if you're like, oh man, I missed it, but if you got it, I'm just going to keep it, um, you know, don't worry, you can jump in, every little bit helps, and uh, so don't be afraid. So um, I want to start this morning with a story, a, a few months ago, um, we recently bought a, um, like a mattress for our trailer. And it was one of these mattresses that came shipped in a box. I, you know, this is a new thing for me. You know, used to go to the mattress store and buy a mattress. Now it comes in the mail. And um, the thing that I was most surprised by was like how little the box was, because it was a queen size bed. And literally it was about that tall. And it was only about that square. And I'm like, this thing's gonna be junk, you know? So like I opened the box. And the other thing that surprised me is how heavy this thing was. It's really heavy. And so, like, I opened up the box, and there's all these warning signs on it, you know. Um, you know, and read the instructions for opening this, and do not, you know, be careful. You could be injured or killed by opening this package. <clears throat> and those of you that have done this, like, it's kind of shrink-wrapped. It's like, it just boggled my mind how they could put all of that you know, into this tiny box. And so with the help of Cindy, we got it into our trailer. And, uh, you know, like I got out my razor knife and, you know, like it's like vacuum sealed and I'm just ex expecting it to explode. And I like start cutting it and I'll, I'll already go, you know, like every little room inch I gave it, it expanded into it. And so I kind of stood back and was like going like this thinking it might take my head off or something, and I finally got it open, and it literally, it did, it, uh, it almost exploded. It just went, 
And uh, then it started growing, you know, because it, it was like this thick and it started growing. And um, sure enough, I, in about two minutes, I had a queen size, a new queen size mattress in my trailer. And um, I still can only do like three days in it. It's like after that, my back hurts. But <laughs> the reason why I'm telling you this story about how shocked I was at how much they'd gotten into this box was that mattress made me think of this book that we're studying in the New Testament right now. Not that it's dangerous, but um, that it's surprising to me how much Mark has compressed into his gospel. You know, it's the shortest of all the gospels, but he's put all the essentials in it. And last week, as we just kind of launched the introduction to this book, we saw that, you know, every gospel writer has a specific audience um, and and an agenda in, in their gospel, the reason why they wrote their thing. And Mark, we saw, wrote his gospel to the Romans, to Gentile Romans, uh, with the goal that showing that Jesus is the Son of God. And as I said, Mark's gospel is the shortest of all four. But, um, and so he leaves a lot of things out that the others put in. Uh, but by doing so, he gets right to the point. He gets to the essentials. And we said that we could look at Mark geographically through three different points in Jesus's ministry there. He starts in Galilee, which we'll see today, and eventually he's on his way to Jerusalem, and the book ends with Jesus being in Jerusalem. So we're just getting started, and Jesus is there in Galilee, where he grew up, and today we're going to see three things. We're going to cover three things in Mark 1, 1 through 15. We're going to see Jesus's baptism and who baptized him. I'm going to introduce you to somebody. And then uh, Jesus' temptation, and then his declaration at the end of why he came into the world. So you open the book of Mark, and immediately he reveals uh, what he believes about Jesus in verse 1 of chapter 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark says from the get-go that Jesus is the Son of God. And we're going to see that his book is all about validating that statement. And he begins by referencing an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. We're going to get to that in a second. And then he connects one of his prophecies with a prophet of the first century, John the Baptist, and what he was specifically teaching. So if you're not familiar with your Bible that much, or if you you are, you can take a little vacation right now in your mind, uh, because I want to tell you a little bit about John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus, and he is definitely one of a kind. And in your notes, I say that John the Baptist was unique, but when I say that, I mean it in kind of a shocking sort of way. So first of all, you know, he was unique in his wardrobe and diet. Verse six, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts, which is like grasshoppers, right, and honey. You know, they say clothes make the man. But uh, what does it say about a prophet who's walking around with a camel hair suit and a leather belt? And then there's his diet, you know, grasshoppers and honey. Evidently that pairs, you know, it's a nice pairing. But Mark here makes this point, not because he wants you to know something unusual about Jesus, but he's making the point that, um, that he's really different. Not just uh, in his diet or his haberdashery, Um, he wasn't your normal, everyday religious teacher in the first century. Because, and this is the second thing, um, he prepared 
the way for Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus. In verse 2, he says, As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And there's his quote from the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now this, this description of John the Baptist as a voice as one crying in the wilderness or the desert is just another depiction of how different John the Baptist is. Because we don't know where he's been, right? It looks like he's coming out of the desert like some type of a creature. And uh, we, know that we know about his birth, right, to Elizabeth and Zechariah, but we have no idea what he's been up to until this point. He's just probably, probably it, it appears like he's just been out in the desert, wandering around, kind of a rogue kind of guy. And Mark quotes Isaiah 40 here, and he's, he's drawing a picture uh, in what he says that, that Isaiah was also drawing a picture when he said, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And the, the context of that is, in, you know, in the Old Testament days, when a dignitary or a ruler would come to a region, they would do all these road improvements, literally. They would make the road straighter. They'd take the, um, they'd eliminate turns or like round them off more. And they would level out the road. They would, you know, fill in the potholes. You know, they would knock down some of the high places and bring up the low places. And uh, the point there was to, to make the travel for this dignitary, this important person, more comfortable for them as they came to their city or town. And so this was a way for the people of that town to not just anticipate, but show that they were anticipating to this important person. They were waiting for them to come. And it showed honor to that dignitary. But Mark here is using the word figuratively. And that's the image of who John the Baptist was, according to Mark. His role was to prepare the way for Jesus to arrive, to get the world ready for Jesus' arrival in the world and his ministry. And he's saying that Jesus is the one for whom the world requires preparing. That Jesus is the one that Isaiah spoke of, that he's the Lord, he's the Messiah. So Mark is saying that John the Baptist was the road smoother for the Lord. And so John has this unique role in preparing the way for Jesus to arrive. And by the way, this is just a footnote. Doesn't it seem like that's kind of like what we're all called to do as Christians? We're preparing the way for the Lord. We prepare the way for the Lord to come into our own lives, right? We, we want it to be easy for Jesus to rule in our lives. We, we don't want to put up barriers. In fact, we, we, want, when, we want our hearts to look like a place that, we, that we've anticipated Jesus coming and being a part of our lives. And then also we have kind of like that calling in the world, don't we? We shine the light, as Jesus said, and we, we're preparing the way for the gospel. No matter what we do, whether you're a pastor or you're a coach or you're a business person, you're a mom, stay-at-home mom or a dad, you're, you know, you're, you're helping with Little League and soccer or whatever, it's like we're all preparing the way for Jesus to be recognized in the world. 
Now, another way that uh, John the Baptist is unique is in his baptism. In verse uh, 4, it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so the emphasis here is on the word repentance. Now, that, that word just means to turn around. It, it means to literally do a 180. And, you know, that was a really confrontational thing for, for him to be saying in the first century. Because he, he's speaking, John the Baptist, is, he's speaking to God's people, the chosen ones, the de devout Jews at that time. And many of them had to be thinking, like, well, why do I have to repent? What's wrong with me? And later we know that John was, like, so intent on this message that um, he also tells the political Jewish king at the time, Herod Antipas, that he needed to repent, too, because he stole his brother's wife. And Herod didn't like that, because later he's jailed. John the Baptist is jailed and beheaded for having said that. You know, it's still true today that many, many of us, probably all of us at one time, we, that word makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? The idea of repent. It seems like there should be some fiery, crazy-haired guy pointing a bony finger and yelling it at you, but I'm saying it nicely, but I'm, I'm pointing the finger at myself. We're all, we all need to be humble enough to realize that we need oftentimes to repent, to turn around from the direction that we're going because repentance is the first step toward believing in Jesus Christ. It's the realization that you need a Savior, that you need a Messiah, that you need saving, and that you cannot save yourself. Now, you may have noticed that Mark describes John the Baptist um, not just teaching that people needed to repent, but he, but he came preaching a baptism of repentance. And so what he was doing is he was calling people, uh, first century Jews, to repent, and he would baptize those who responded to that message. And a lot of people did. Verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. There's a lot of people going out there to see this guy and listen to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So... As difficult as it would have been for them to hear this message, uh, you, you need to repent, they're responding in such a humble way. They're saying, yeah, I need repentance. Baptize me right here and now to that message in the Jordan River. I repent. And a lot of people do it. So they were going out to hear this really quirky guy that is talking about to hear what he's talking about. And once they hear him, God touches them in some way. And they responded by recognizing by how far from God they actually were. I don't know about you, but that's kind of my experience in becoming a Christian. I, didn't, I wasn't raised in church. Um, and I became a Christian in 10th grade. There was nothing that indicated that I was on my way to become a Christian. In fact, the opposite. I've told you before. My first Sunday, I wore my roach clip to church, and it had a cross on it, so it made it Christian. Um, and yet, you know, like, God got a hold of me. I, I responded to that message in a way that was, like, really surprising to my family and to my friends and to me, of course. So, 
So um, John the Baptist's message were so different from what they were accustomed to uh, at that time. You might, you might ask this question. Was, was John's baptism different than, than ours today? So it's a good question. I asked it for you because um, I wanted to talk about it. Baptism of the first century was um, a way that any religious sect, and, so, and, and, and in truth, sometimes pagan groups uh, identified themselves as followers through this act that we know as baptism. Now, John's baptism was of repentance. That's in your notes, of repentance. Those who were baptized by John uh, identified themselves as his followers and with his message of repentance. They were saying, yeah, I repent of my complacent, inauthentic Jewish faith. That's what they were saying when they when they were baptized. You've heard the term before, like modern term, uh, cultural Christian. You know, kind of Christian kind of in name only, or, you know, you know just not, not really all the way on board. Um, in the first century, you had cultural Jews. And uh, they identified as Jewish. In fact, they kept some of the traditions, the, the ones that they wanted to, the ones they were comfortable with, and they would show up to synagogue on occasion, and uh, they probably had the I'm, I'm Jewish sticker on their chariot, uh, and they probably wore a t-shirt with King David on the back, but John was saying to them, you're fake. Uh, you're not really committed. You're, you're complacent in your faith. You talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk, and they were like, yeah, in that moment, you're right. I'm, I'm a poser. And I repent. So baptize me, please, here in the Jordan. But there's a difference in John's baptism and Christian baptism. Not all baptisms are the same. And uh, they knew that even in the first century. When Paul arrived in Ephesus, uh, he asked the believers there in Acts 19, verse 3, uh, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And then Paul told them, well, we have a problem here. In verse 4, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul told believers who were baptized by John and later became Christians that they needed to be rebaptized. Why? Because John's baptism symbolized their repentance, but not their belief in Christ. John's baptism was to identify with their need to repent of their complacency. But Christian baptism signifies that you identify with the message and the forgiveness of Christ. So when John's followers were baptized, they were saying, yes, I need to repent and be baptized in order to be forgiven. And when a follower of Christ is baptized, they're saying, I have been forgiven through Christ. So baptism is a way to publicly acknowledge our belief in him and to proclaim our desire to follow him to the best of our ability. We say that all the time here about baptism. And it's a rich tradition with all the symbolism that goes way back even before the first century but in the first century, it began to be the way that Christians identified with the message and uh, the resurrection of Christ. And you can see it in the symbolism. We say it when we baptize here, you know, like, you know, 
buried in the likeness of his death under the water, raised to walk in newness of life. That's the picture of baptism. And that's, that's why we don't baptize infants here at Sunridge, because an infant cannot acknowledge uh, their belief in Jesus and accept his forgiveness. And it's why we ask every person that we're baptizing, you know, um, why are you coming to be baptized today? Is it because you want to profess your faith in Christ? So, you guys still with me? Okay. Um, John was unique in his wardrobe and diet. Uh, he prepared people for Jesus' arrival and his baptism, and he's unique in another way. His message of Jesus, his message about Jesus. In verse 7, it says that this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, uh, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So at that time, John is considered this really powerful teacher. People were traveling a good way out of town, from Jerusalem to the Jordan River, quite a, quite a ways, just to hear him preach. And he was telling people, you got to repent and be baptized, and they responded. But he told them, compared to the one who's coming, I'm lame sauce. He's more powerful than me. I'm not worthy even to tie his shoes. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's another way that John the Baptist was unique. And here's another one. He baptized Jesus. He baptized Jesus. Over the years, you guys, I've been here since we were talking about this today um, in a small group of like, I've been at Sunridge since about 1991. And uh, I've baptized a lot of you. In fact, some of you, I've baptized you and I've baptized your parents because you're grown up now. And uh, I can tell you, like, every time I baptize someone from this church, it's, I'm just so thrilled to do it. I, it's a privilege to me. Now, I've baptized so many of you, I may not remember that I baptized you. But I want you to know, in that moment, it's very special to me. <laughs> but I'm 66 now, and I can't remember everything that happened. And uh, so some of you can relate to that, but... The thing I'm trying to bring out is, can you imagine, like, you guys are special to me, but can you, be, can you imagine to be the person that baptized Jesus? Um, I pictured Jesus waiting till last to be baptized. I mean, it'd be a real bummer uh, for you to get baptized after Jesus because you're going to see what happens after Jesus' baptism. And I picture everybody watching, and in verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water... He saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. So as John is raising Jesus up out of the water, Jesus sees heaven torn open. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him, Mark says, like a dove. Now, if you've ever wondered where that, where that image of the Holy Spirit came from, like being depicted as, as a dove um, on T-shirts and stickers or whatever, it's this passage. This is where it comes from. But let me, let me just like do a little retro dive on that, um, how this imagery comes forward in Mark. You guys want to hear about it? Or would you rather me skip it? Okay. Okay, in Genesis 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Do you notice that word, hovering? Rabbis 
throughout the centuries and in this first century that we're looking at here, they translated that word as fluttering. And they talked about the Spirit's involvement in the creation event as fluttering over the process like a dove. That's their language. That's their imagery. And that's why Mark adds this. He could have sim simply said, and the Holy Spirit descended. But instead, he says, like a dove. And what he's doing here is he's using the language of the rabbis in the first century. And what he's trying to do is he's reinforcing how, how unique Jesus is, that he is the son of God. And he's making a connection to their scriptures in the way that they would relate to it. Here's another thing. In Genesis, uh, there are three parties involved in the creation, if you remember. There's God, God's spirit, and God's word. And it's the same at Jesus' baptism. You have the father is there with his voice. You have the son, and you have the spirit fluttering like a dove, just like in creation. So you have the trinity in creation, all the way through to Jesus' baptism. In creation, you have the God declaring, it is good. And at Jesus' baptism, you have the Father making this declaration, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So here the Father's voice is saying, you're not just my son, but I am pleased with you. I am, I am with you. You represent me. Now, there's two questions that could come up from this section of Scripture. One, you might ask, why did Jesus get baptized? I mean, did he need to repent? Before John, I thought, I thought he was perfect. No, he didn't need to repent. And Matthew's account gives us a more detailed explanation. Matthew 3.13, it's going to be up on the screens. Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, but John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? See how Matthew expanded Mark's really brief version. Mark's is the, the husband's version of the story. <laughs> At least that's what Cindy tells me. My stories are too short. Um, John says, like, wait a minute. I, I should be, you should be baptizing me. Um, but Jesus said, verse 15, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. And so God, John agreed to baptize him. So Jesus had no need of repentance, but he is demonstrating his full submission to God as his heavenly father. And he's, and he's saying, I'll walk the walk that everybody else is walking. And that has implications for us today. So that's the second question you ask if I'm a believer, do I need to be baptized? The answer to that question is yes. Why? Well, for one, being baptized after believing is the overwhelming pattern we see in the New Testament. You just want, just read through your New Testament, believe and be baptized. They believed and then they were baptized. And then secondly, in the Great Commission, Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize others. Look at it. Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, Christian. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to be your pastor here. If you're a believer and you've not been baptized, I want to ask you, how can you fulfill Jesus' command 
as, his, as one of his disciples to baptize others when you have not been baptized yourself? It's a good question. But additionally, I think we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus was baptized, why wouldn't I be baptized? Why wouldn't you do it? I mean, that's a question for each of us to ask in our own hearts. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But Jesus was baptized, he said, to, to, to demonstrate his full submission to God. And that, that, that leaves a little bit of a question there for, for us all to think about, right? Like, if I'm holding back that part, am I in full submission to God? Some of you are like, well, if I'm not baptized, will I go to heaven? Yes. Salvation, we know, is based on faith. Faith in Christ, not anything we do. But like I said before, baptism is simply a way that we acknowledge our belief in him and proclaim our desire to follow him with, to the best of our ability. So if you're a believer, you should be baptized. And among all the other things that God calls us to be obedient in, you guys, this is a layup. This is easy. I mean, we're going to get to some other parts. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If you don't drink my blood and eat my flesh, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, like, be baptized? I can check that off the list easy, Lord. So if you want to know more about baptism, you can check that out at our website and how to, how to get yourself registered to do it. So right after this amazing experience, um, we go to the next section where Jesus is tempted. And it's kind of like a second thought that goes with this text today. Jesus is tempted by Satan in verses 12 through 13. And Mark is so brief here again com compared to Matthew. But straightway, Jesus faces a battle. Verse 12, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So what I think is really interesting about this is that Jesus has this amazing experience. Um, you're my child, a voice, I'm, I'm so delighted in you, and then boom, Satan is right there. And I don't know about you, but... A lot of times that's how it works for me. Something really great. God does something amazing in, in, in this church, in, um, in my life. And then you know who's right behind that? Trying to steal that victory or that joy? It's Satan. And it, and it tells me that you, we, can't, um, we can't judge God's love for us or our relationship with him by our situation. You know, when Satan comes and tempts or, you know, we're tempted of our own flesh, it brings a lot of questions and doubts. And the truth is we can just be right where God wants us to be, but be right in the middle of a storm at the same time. Now, Mark doesn't give the details, but Matthew reveals how Satan tempts Jesus. He wants him to find peace in other things rather than having his confidence in God. He says, wouldn't it be nice to have your belly full all the time? And then he says, if God loves you so much as his dear son, why don't you jump off this cliff and see how much he loves you? And then thirdly, he says, wouldn't it be nice to have everything the world offers? And that's like the three plays Satan runs over and over in our lives. And it, it essentially gets down to this. God doesn't care about you that much. He's, it, living for him is not worth it. 
You're just wasting your life in trying to be a genuine disciple of Christ. And, you know, when, you, when, when that is happening in our lives, just like in the life of Jesus, it's in a super intense time. And notice that this is Satan himself that comes to test him, not some lower minion. Uh, this is the, they're bringing out the big guns against Jesus. And, and Mark, he's the only one that mentions this, in addition to being under Satan's attack, he's also uh, in the presence of wild animals, which seems to indicate, I mean, we don't know. I mean, scholars try to figure this out, but like, it was like his, life, his physical life was being threatened at the same time. And so to be under intense physical and spiritual threat at once, man, that's like, that's hard. And Jesus holds up under that pressure. Uh, and he gives us an example that I think that we can follow. He stands on God's word. In Matthew's account, Jesus answers each temptation by Satan with, it is written. And then he quotes scripture. So pressure can make us stronger if we stand on God's word. I think that's a good takeaway there. I don't know what kind of pressure you're under today, and what kind of voices are speaking into your head about whether your faith is worth it or whether God cares about you or whether God even knows what's going on in your life or it seems like he's abandoned you. What I can tell you is that you will emerge from that time of temptation and pressure a much stronger person if you stand on God's word in that moment. You can't see it, but God has given you that truth. And the time to believe it is when it's the hardest to believe it. Jesus emerges from this time into like, and this is the last section of this passage, um, ready to launch his ministry. He, Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. Remember we talked about that's his hometown, his region. And in verse 14, after John was put in prison, remember Herod Antipas was going to put him in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And again, Mark is super brief in how he recounts Jesus' life here. He tells us John was arrested and Jesus announced that the kingdom of God has arrived. And then, uh, even though it's brief, Mark gives us a summary of Jesus' core message throughout his entire ministry. He went, to Gal he went about Galilee announcing the good news that God's kingdom has come near. And what he's saying is Jesus is carrying forward the story from the Hebrew scriptures about God's rescue operation for the world, that there was a Messiah coming and that we need to acknowledge that we need that Messiah, repent and believe in the Son of God. And for the next eight chapters, we're going to see just how Jesus works out his ministry in, um, in Galilee. And Mark's going to record that for us so that we can see more evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. So, let me just close today. I, we've covered only 15 verses, but it's been like disconnected. And I just want to draw, like, draw our attention back to one thing by reminding all of you that are here today and that are watching online or listening, that if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, God, I, I want to take you back to 
what God said of his son. Okay, if you're a Christian, listen to this. In Mark 1.11, we read it, a voice from heaven came and said, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And the reason why I draw that verse out is I want to remind you that the Bible tells us that those of us who believe are also the children of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. So when God looks at you, when he looks at every believer, he sees a child of his own. He sees a son. He sees a daughter. Because of what Christ did on the cross, God sees us not as, as, as who we are all the time, but who we are in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I want to remind you that God looks at us and he says, you're my child whom I love and who, in whom I am well pleased. And I want you to think about those words as if they were addressed to you. Not, not that we are reading them in the Bible, but as if they're being addressed to you as God's child. You are my child, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Let those words sink in. Don't move on to the next thought, what you're going to eat for lunch. Just let those words sink in, that you're my child, and I'm delighted in you. And let them, maybe you've gotten so used to hearing that passage of Scripture that like, but let it hit you like a ton of bricks. You're my child, and I'm delighted in you. Let those words describe you. Let those words shape you. Let those words make you, to change you. Let those words make you want to change. Hear those words in your mind as you walk out of this building and you drive out of this parking lot today. Hear those words when you look in the mirror tomorrow morning and you think, I don't even know how I can get through this day. Hear those words when you're driving to work tomorrow or you're waking up to three little rugrats running around the house. You're my child and I'm delighted with you. Think about those words this week when you get all stressed out. Think about it when you're in a big fight with your husband or your wife and you're like, I can't do this anymore. Think about it when you think that God has forgotten you. And think about it in those times of intense temptation where it feels like you just want to walk away from God. And let those words make you the person that God has made you to be. You're my child, and I'm delighted in you. Let's stand and worship, church. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.